Welcome to the Christmas edition of the Equipping Webinar. We are excited that you're here. My name is Nathan Wagnon. I serve on staff here at Watermark. I'm the Director of Equipping and Apologetics, and this is the one of the fun things I get to do is uh, help host this webinar. To my left across the table is Sylvia Bateman. Yes, Nathan, I just want to say you really slayed that uh, opening <laughs> intro right there. <laughs> Sylvia's like the queen of puns. Uh, yes, well, you um, got to be the queen of something. But so. we are wearing, what are, we're wearing Christmas Yes, I barely recognize stuff. Nathan. Yeah. He has a bearded ho-ho-ho hat. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm it's glad to awesome. be here with you guys taking your questions at any time. Feel free to use that questions feature like Nathan said. And I also have a joke for us. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. what does Santa suffer from when he gets trapped in a chimney? What does he suffer from? He suffers from claustrophobia <laughs> yes that's a keeper that's a keeper uh, i'll just introduce myself oh, so nike spaulding director oh. of women's equipping and curriculum and also one of the co-hosts of this webinar and i too have a joke so sylvia <laughs> yeah what do you call chess players showing off in a hotel lobby wow i have no idea <laughs> chestnuts boasting in an open foyer <laughs> there we go so if you haven't noticed already, this is obviously a little different setup than our normal <laughs> webinar. Uh, rather than bringing in a guest, Nathan and I, in addition to Sylvia, will be walking through Christmas, essentially. And so asking questions of Christmas traditions, when was Jesus born? What about this old jolly Saint Nick? Is there any truth to this? And so while um, it's just the two of us, we thought we'd bring some whimsy and fun because that's part of the Christmas season. But, you know, Nathan, yeah. one of the things we do every year is we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. And yeah. I think as long as I've been alive and as long as you've been alive, that's always been the tradition and sort of left unquestioned. But the real question is, is that Jesus's birthday? And so yeah. why don't you jump in and start kicking us off with that information? Yeah, this is one of the more common, commonly misunderstood things about uh, Christmas and uh, just primarily because both the day and the actual year are in are in question. And uh, the, the year is in question. I mean, actually, it's not even in question. I mean, there's pretty much like broad consensus among scholars that Jesus was not born in 1 AD. There's, there's no zero year, by the way. It goes from 1 BC to 1 AD. But that he was actually born sometime between 5 and 2 BC. Probably most accurate that he was born in the uh, the winter months of 4 BC. So um, Herod the Great died in the spring of 4. And so uh, if Jesus's birth was early in the year, uh, in the winter months of 4, then his birth would have predated Herod's death by a couple of months. So and Nate, how do we get, so you sort of have always heard your whole life, that, you know, AD, BC, and even now people are no longer using that dating system, sort of using BCE, CE yep. for common era, before common era. Yep. But AD, as as most people know, stands for Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. Yep. And so how do we get that wrong, so to speak? Why, why, where does that tradition come from? And that was when Jesus was born. Yeah, so it, it that has a long history as well. But the short of it is uh, before this dating system, we went off the Julian calendar, which is a, Ro is a Roman calendar. And that was based off of the founding of the city of Rome. Mm -hmm. um, so which which that dating system was called AUC, which is Anno Urbis Condite, which is before the founding of the city. And so in the 6th century AD, there was a pope who asked Dionysius, who was a Scythian monk, to adjust the calendar system so they didn't have to uh, date their events 
off of a pagan's, <laughs> yeah. you know, founding. Sure. And so, which uh, Gregory, Pope Gregory was the one that like pushed this forward, which is why it's called the Gregorian calendar. But the problem is, is that Dionysius missed, he was actually dating, he wasn't trying to date from Christ's birth, he was dating from Christ, from the resurrection, right. um, which we'll get to in a second. But because of that, because he was dating from from Easter instead of Christmas, he basically missed. <laughs> he missed by he missed by three or four years. And so that's why now it's funny. Even a friend of mine last Christmas was like, hey, man, I always thought Jesus was born in like zero, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I'm just now finding out that that's not the case. Like, you know, and he was a little bit frustrated by that. But I was like, hey, it's OK. You know, it's not that's that's a common mistake. But the, the tradition of the early church and when Jesus was born being shifted because of the Gregorian calendar to between 4 and 2 BC, it's interesting because very early on in the church, we don't have a lot of, of references to the birth of Jesus, primarily just because for the early Christians, they did not celebrate people's birthdays. And I, I think this is really telling. I think for the early church, they were far less concerned about people's birthdays they were concerned with the day that people died because for the early church, the day that someone died was considered their birthday because yeah. it, it ushered them into the new life that's found um, in Christ, uh, the eternal life with Christ in heaven. And so, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, in fact, one of the very early church fathers, a guy named Origen, who was mid third century, like 250-ish, said this. He said, only sinners celebrate birthdays in this way. You know, <laughs> like he's talking about, uh, pagan kings and other uh, rituals that people did to celebrate birthdays. And so we don't have a ton of evidence about the actual birth of Jesus because, frankly, the early church just didn't care. They, it See, I just assumed he, that's why he was always mad at his disciples is because they wouldn't get him a birthday <laughs> present. You know, they're walking along, and Jesus looks at Peter, and he's like, who do you say that I am? And he answers him. He's like, when's my birthday? You know, under his breath, but— it's good information yeah. to know that maybe yeah. something different. And they ought to go back and just double click on, you know, the early church celebrating people's really their death, yeah. not their birth. Yeah. And think about the implications that has for what we truly believe entering into eternity is. Mm -hmm. You know, I think mm -hmm. um, certainly there's a time for mourning and I, I don't mean to make light of death, but there is a sweetness, I think, that can as Christians, we can hold on to that. Um, we we should take Paul at face value because yep. Paul is ultimately inspired by the word of God and which says to die is gain. I mean, mm -hmm. there is a real value and hope and promise in a Christian's death that they're ushered into new life. And yep. I think that's a sweet thing that the early church did. Personally, I enjoy celebrating my birth as well. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, Birthdays are typically more fun yeah. than... But if you want to throw a party on the anniversary of my death too... Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I think it's legitimate. And that was one of the things that was challenging for me as I was looking at this was especially we see in, we see Jesus in John 11 when he's encountering uh, Martha after Lazarus dies mm. and he there's the famous quote that one of the I am statements where um, she says yeah I know my brother will, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day and Jesus looks back on her and he's like I am the resurrection and the life you know the one who believes in me will live even though he dies and the one who lives because of me will never die right so there's that there's this interesting statement where Jesus is like hey um, you're going to live even if you die, and and because of me, you'll actually substantively never die, which for the Christian, for those who, are, who have found new life in Christ, who have entered into eternal life now, death is less a – it's not – there's no finality to yeah. it at all. Like it's it's a it's a door. It's a doorway into what life was, was always supposed to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. So which is really interesting. But 
But anyway. So do you um, think the early church celebrated Tabitha's birthday twice? And <laughs> I always think when Peter brought Tabitha yeah. back from the dead in Acts, she looked at him and said, boy, you better let me go on to heaven. I know, right. Or, La- or Lazarus <laughs> or the widows. Yeah, I mean, sure. um, any sure, of those sure. people. Sweet. Um, so anyway, but back to Christmas. So Clement of Alexandria, who is a very early father, predates the Council of Nicaea. So late second century, which would have been like 150 to 200, basically, A.D., um, was the first one to actually say anything um, in his writings about the birth of Jesus. And interestingly, he only talks about it in reference to other people who were more fringe-type people in the early church, like, I'm not going to go into what all these people believe, but like Montanists, who are kind of like the, the first Pentecostals, you know, uh, the Marcionites, some of the Gnostics, who celebrated their feast or their their Christmas feast, they celebrated on January the 6th. Now, because Clement of Alexandria, which in his name, right, um, was from Alexandria, Egypt, he was dating things uh, according to an Egyptian calendar. And so he says a different date, but when you translate it, you either get, well, three different dates. You either get January the 6th, or you get like May the 20th, or you get November the 18th, right? <laughs> so it's like, well, which one was it? You know, it's it literally is all over the map. And so there are ways of figuring out um, what Clement was was saying, given that the fathers who followed him latched onto some dates that reinforced, I think, what, what Clement was trying to say. I, I think probably based on what Clement was saying, the most solid date that we can look at that the Eastern Church actually grabbed hold of and ran with is January the 6th. Mm-hmm. I personally believe that that probably has the most historical reliability to it um, of, of January I the 6th. I want to believe that because January yeah. birthdays are the best. So <laughs> When's your birthday? January 15th. So <laughs> just throwing that out there. Yeah, that's tight. It would be fun to share the same month with our Savior. <laughs> nice. Of course, I'll have to wait till heaven, it sounds like. Cause, mm, yeah, yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. like, Nate, kind of what you're getting at is it really wasn't as big of a priority. It totally wasn't. And so yeah. it speaks to a little bit of, the, the humble means mm. of, in which mm. Jesus was born. I mean, we know the story as some of it, you know, cultural and some of it actually from scripture, born yep. in a manger, um, no room in the inn, you know, and, and even at his birth, you know, the Magi come later, you mm. know, the Magi come and then present the gifts to this king. And so you have this, this king of the universe coming down into a lowly manger in such an insignificant moment and in some ways that we don't even have it marked on a calendar. Yeah, and yeah. so... Well, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, at all? yeah, and I think too, it's a it speaks to what, like we've said. I mean, the 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 early church, you know, even Jesus himself, when he's talking to Nicodemus in John three, where he's talking about being born again. There's this emphasis on this other birth, and and it's totally confusing to Nicodemus because he's like, how do you enter into the womb a second time? You know, yeah. and Jesus is like, dude, you're missing it. Like I'm talking, I'm I'm trying to tell you about a, a redeemed life, a life that's lived in the way that it was always supposed to to have been meant to live. And so for sure, yeah, in the early church, the um, the focus was on um, a Christian's death, which was considered their their new birth um, in, into the life of God. And so, but a lot of times people will ask, well, you know, if it really was, if the actual historical date really was January the 6th, then why, how in the world do we get December the 25th, yeah, you know, why, question. why are we um, doing, why are yeah, we Clement celebrating? names three dates and yeah. none of them are, are December, December 25th. 25th. Yeah, right. absolutely. So I would say this is that there is broad uh, agreement among fathers that come either during the Nicene period, which is in the fourth century and after 
on December the 25th. And I think the reason why is because they, according to the fathers, like significant people could only live a whole number of years. So it's not, if you had a significant person, you couldn't live like 28 years or 29 years. Like it was either 10, 20, 30, like these, these types of numbers. And they were also trying to apply a lot of theological significance to the dates that they were going for. And so what they ended up doing was formulating this, this way of, of figuring this out that started with the Annunciation, which is the angel's pronouncement to Mary that you will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll call him, you know, Emmanuel. And that happened traditionally that happened on March the 25th. That's the, the spring equinox, mm -hmm. which is like the you know first day of spring. It's it's new life. It's considered even by some it's considered the, the anniversary of the, the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of theological significance to March the 25th. And so that's where those guys dated the conception of Christ. It's still celebrated today. People celebrate the conception of Christ on March the 25th. Well, nine go, go forward nine right. months, yeah. right? And what do you have? December, December the 25th. That's and great. so that, that's why these guys latched on to December the 25th as, as the birth of our Lord. I mean, a, a Tertullian Hippolytus, who is a guy that actually talked about this, he, he uh, talks about this quite a bit um, and spells it out exactly what I just said. Actually, not what I said. I'm just quoting him, right? And then John Chrysostom, Jerome, Augustine, all those guys is December the 25th. And it's really clear that they're doing this for theological reasons and not necessarily like uh, historical ones. And so it's funny, I, uh, someone uh, that I ran across in researching for this uh, said, uh, quote, many efforts to confirm the date of Christmas as historically uh, reliable resembles lawyers defending bad cases with poor arguments, <laughs> you know, end yeah. quote. And so it's a it's interesting because it's all over the map, but at the end of the day, I think we can understand that because of theological significance, there's there's this emphasis on March the 25th, the spring equinox, and then uh, nine months later is actually in some calendars um, is close to or even the day of the winter solstice, and so that that ends up being December the 25th, and so that's where when the Christmas feast began to be celebrated in history, it they latched onto that date and we've had it pretty much ever since. So, so Nate, go ahead and tell us too, because I thought this was interesting as we were researching all this, how did we get the 12 days of Christmas? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the Eastern church, as I said, if you know much of church history, you know, there were, there were schisms um, and the Eastern church and the Western church broke off from one another. They actually had different popes. They differed from one another theologically in some way, but still held to the, to the essentials of Christianity. And the Eastern Church is the one that latched on to January the 6th. Um, they, they did so, and still the Armenian Church today still celebrates Christmas on January the 6th. But they also celebrate the Magi or the three, or the traditionally the three wise men. We don't know how many there were, but the wise men who came to Bethlehem on January the 6th. And then also it, January 6th is also the traditional date of Jesus's baptism, which started his public ministry. Mm -hmm. And so January the 6th is a really significant date. For, for all those reasons. And because of that, especially the Armenian church and the Eastern church for a long time celebrated all of those things on the same day. Now, the Western church 
um, obviously grabbed hold of because of all the guys that I mentioned previously, yeah. um, which was centered in Rome. The Western Church grabbed hold of this December 25th date, but still retained the Magi, the wise men coming to Jesus on January the 6th. And so there was a there was the birth of Jesus. And then 12 days later, there was the celebration of the wise men coming to give him gifts. And yeah. that turned into a, hey, I'm going to give you a gift on a, a one a day for the 12 days of Christmas. You know, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me right. a partridge in a pear tree. What the heck is that, you know? <laughs> but, um, and they, and they go through this song and I, I was just funny. I was like, man, on the, you know, maybe on the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me some clarity on all of this <laughs> <laughs> because it can be really confusing um, when you start to get into how all the traditions overlap and intersperse with one another. But basically it's because of uh, the birth of Jesus being celebrated. And then 12 days later, the celebration of the wise men coming to Jesus and in the Armenian church, the, the baptism and, and public ministry of Jesus. I love it. I was just throwing yeah, that out there in case anybody wants 12 gifts. They can <laughs> one a day. For, yeah. One yeah. a day from the 20th I honestly, to the January. Soon. You know, it's, it's funny because too, there's a, we'll get to this in a minute, but um, a lot of people, for a long time would not take their Christmas decorations down until January the 7th mm. because of this, um, that, that January 6th was the last day of Christmas. And here I, I am know. judging people for having, I know it's funny. Like, yeah, I mean, new year's comes and if you haven't taken your Christmas tra you're decorations lazy. down, you're like, Oh man, you know, Although it's, this year I'm making a pitch to keep it up year round. I don't think my roommates are going to go. For it, <laughs> yeah, probably beautiful. not. Let All me, right. let me say one more thing yeah. about this because there's a popular, um, tradition or not, not even a tradition. It's not, it's not really a tradition. It's just a, a misunderstanding. There's a popular misunderstanding about December the 25th, uh, the church overlapping or um, trying to use that day in order to take away a, a pagan holiday that the Romans used to celebrate. Yeah, so I've heard that, right? Yeah, yeah. So sort of pagans on December 25th would celebrate a pagan holiday. So the yep. church decided to steal the day, turn it into Christmas and bada bing, bada boom. That's how we got Christmas yep, to try right. and draw people towards Christianity. So true, not true. No, I mean, not true at all. I mean, there's a, so the feast of uh, Saturnalia, which is the Roman God of agriculture, actually was is, was not even celebrated on December the 25th. And so there's this whole idea of uh, let's let's you know let's grab this and 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 kind of import Christian meaning into a pagan holiday. Um so we we definitely can't say that of of the Roman god of agriculture, but then there's there's another one that probably people are more familiar with which is um the feast of Natalis Invicti or or the the unconquered sun god of the Romans. And man, just, just because it's the sun God, a lot of times Christians will pull into that. Hey, you know, Christ is the sun, right. the son of God. There's, right. there's just different types of, of wordplay there that just have no meaning to them. And so the, the re now I will say the feast of Natalis Invicti is on December the 25th. The problem with saying that it was in, that the Christians stole it to infuse it with a Christian meaning is that the tradition of Christ's birth being on December the 25th predates yeah. the naming of that feast. <laughs> they can't go back so in time and see. If anything, it. Yeah. it would be the other way around. Right. The pagans are trying to take, you know, but the reason that is is because of the, the winter solstice. I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they're celebrating that aspect of the, 
the uh, calendar. So mm. anyway. Well, perhaps it's synonymous with Christmas as Jesus Christ is probably Santa Claus, sadly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But it is one of those things that obviously Santa Claus is inescapable this time of year. And um, regardless of sort of how your family handles handles the Santa Claus character, he's certainly prevalent in pop culture. You see him at the mall. He's everywhere. And so then the question was just where did he come from? Was he a real guy? And what's up with Rudolph? No, I'm kidding. We're not going to cover Rudolph. But, <laughs> um, but so Santa Claus is – in some ways, a real guy. And so we'll talk about how he went from being a real saint to, to the jolly man in, in red clothes. But St. Nicholas is a, a saint from the third century. Um, he grew up in what would be southern modern-day coast of Turkey. Um, and as the legend goes, and I say legend because the difficult thing about St. Nicholas is you try to find as much information as you can about him, but there's just not a ton. Yeah, yeah. If you're a historian, solid evidence that you put your finger on and go, that that proves to me this. You know, A lot of it is circumstantial or legend and myth and doesn't necessarily mean they're not true, but I'm not going to sit here and say I know for certain this yeah, guy did totally. these things. And it's not so, well documented. Yeah, so as the legend goes, and what we think is true of, of this St. Nicholas is that he, as a young man, his parents died probably around teenager age, and he was left with a large inheritance, so he's a very wealthy guy. Um, and one of the most popular stories about him is he's in town, and he knows about a man who has three daughters, and they're poor, and so they can't pay a dowry. And because they can't pay the dowry, the girls are probably going to be sold into slavery. Mm -hmm. So St. Nick takes some gold and he puts it in a bag and legend goes one of two ways. Either he chucked it through a window or he threw it down the chimney. Um, but her stockings, eldest daughter's stockings were drying near the fire and the, the money bag fell near the stockings. And mm. so, and then they discovered later that it was St. Nick who had done that and saved them from being sold in slavery. And so thus was born this tradition yeah. of putting out your stockings near the fireplace and and St. Nick would visit you in the night and bring you a piece of gold or something like that, which is funny because I grew up in a house where my mom would put an orange and it was yep. always cold, which meant she grabbed it that morning, stuck <laughs> it in our stockings. And I was like, why an orange? And she's like, because we always put oranges in. And then I learned that the reason why we do that is because over time, rather than actually sticking gold in kids' stockings, because it's unrealistic, yeah, people would yeah. put gold balls or yeah, gold spheres. Yeah, and so yeah. oranges, grapefruits, things yeah. like that. So I was laughing at how we've taken this gold tradition, gold-colored, yeah. cylindrical fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and throwing it in a sock, yeah. um, and yet the tradition continues on. And so he he eventually became Bishop of Mira. Um, everything I've said so far is probably true based on some of it. He was known for a love of children and, and oddly enough, just a really deep concern for ships and sailors. Mm -hmm. And so, um, which is part of how St. Nicholas spread. He wasn't just important in Turkey, yeah. but these sailors would go out throughout the world. And so you have in Athens and you have in Constantinople and all of these places, St. Nick being a guy that was revered because here are these sailors and the, and the road <laughs> AKA yeah. the sea was treacherous. Yeah. And I think today in Greece, he's still the patron saint right. of sailors absolutely. Um, in, in Greece. So you're absolutely right. They have a chapel there as well. Um, and there's even a story in Athens where there were three theological students that were traveling along and they stayed at an inn and the innkeeper was wicked and actually murdered them. Mm. Um, and then St. Nick apparently came to the same inn and then called out the innkeeper and then prayed that God would bring these kids back to life. And he did. Mm. And, uh, and so you that most people agree is whimsy and, and fairy tale, yeah. but it became this. I mean, St. Nick became this character. He really cared about kids. He really cared about sailors. Um, there's a personal story that I love that there's absolutely no way to substantiate. I do not think it actually happened, but supposedly St. Nick was uh, invited to the council of Nicaea and at the council of Nicaea, the church is trying to stop heresy. I mean, that's part of what yeah. they're doing there. So this guy Arius, who's apparently 
putting forth heresy. And the story is that Saint Nick marches down. He was. That was not the. That is an actual historical thing that happened. (laughs) But the whimsy in the the fiction is Saint Nick runs down front and just slaps him across the face. Uh, So you Santa Claus, bam! Which is a very different image of Santa Claus than the one I grew up with. Is going around slapping heretics in the face, which I think we should frankly bring that back. But um, yeah, yeah. So when he probably suffered under Diocletian and, and probably was then in prison and then they believe it was released. But to the best that we can figure out, was a real man, really did care about children, really was generous with his money, very generous. Some say gave it all away. Some say gave most of it away. Um, lived his life in the pursuit of godliness, lived his life in the pursuit of being Christ-like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting how this character has been sort of transformed from yeah. um, a saint who was, who was adamant about following Christ, following the teachings of Christ, to sort of this over-materialized you know, jolly fat man in a red suit. Yeah, so, so. so talk to us about that. I mean, how how in the world do you go from a saint in the early church, very early yeah. in the church, to a a fat elf in a red <laughs> yeah. suit that, yeah, it's good. that is that handing travels out the world presents and, to everybody? Yeah. yeah, what in the world? So St. Nicholas was revered. And as you mentioned earlier, throughout church history, there's there's changes that happen. So during the Reformation, suddenly we have people like Luther and Calvin who are a little bit more weary of saints, which is a part of our tradition now. You know, we don't have saints in, in, at Watermark. And and so what happened is rather than wanting to carry on the story of saints, what Martin Luther did is he came up and he said, hey, look, instead of St. Nicholas giving gifts on Christmas, why don't we say the Christ child gave gifts? And so he used Christ Kindle, Christ Kindle, which now is modern-day Kris Kringle, which yeah. the irony is that Kris King- Kringle is a synonym for who? Yeah. Santa. Santa Claus, <laughs> so yeah. I'm sure, 34th Street. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Martin Luther, the German, is rolling over in his grave right now. But you see the Dutch that continued the story of St. Nick's, and they call him Sinterklaas, which is where Santa Claus get the name from, Sinterklaas. Well, after Americans started colonizing America, suddenly they wanted to return back to their roots. Hey, we miss some of our European culture. We miss some of that. And so they looked to this old St. Nick character mm-hmm. to bring over to America. Mm-hmm. And so Center Claus, Santa Claus, made his way over to America. Um, but what we saw was obviously became commercialized. You start hearing yeah. this story, the night before Christmas yeah, tale. Christmas, yeah. And so now you've got this story where he is dressed up in this red velvet suit and he's got white trim, much like Nathan's hat today. Um, and then suddenly <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa. this story that was told of how he has reindeer and he's traveling the world and handing out gifts really became the gold standard for mm-hmm. who is Santa. And yeah. so in a lot of ways, what started out as a very different path for Santa and Santa <laughs> Claus and Chris King, well, to where Martin Luther, I know, I mean, with his sharp tongue, was just like, are you kidding me right now <laughs> if he walks into Macy's? Yeah. But there was a real commercialization yeah. from department stores who were really trying to latch on to, I mean, that's how, that's how Rudolph came yeah. about was, I mean, those are marketing Ploys. Absolutely. Some yeah. some executives in the top floor of a building yeah, totally. came up with, hey, what is an effective way to sell merchandise? Yep. And and frankly, they nailed it. I totally, mean, you think totally. about um, whatever ad campaigns were famous when we were kids. It's Mikey, he likes it. You know, we sort yeah, of remember them, but yeah, you don't see yeah. them on the news or in television anymore. And yet every year without fail, Santa Claus is in our malls yep. across yep. the Macy's parades and he's showing up. Yeah, it's and- become so deeply ingrained in our culture that to even try to remove him would be like so un-American. Not just, yeah. I mean, take Christianity out of it. Absolutely. Like now you're talking about America, you know, <laughs> like it would be so un-American that people would 
stone you. Yeah. <laughs> Throw stones Well, and interestingly, you. you have even those who would not profess a faith in Christ would still, in some ways, profess a faith in, yeah, in Santa. Santa it becomes yeah. a, yeah. it's so inbred in our culture. You think about it, you send your kids off to public school, they're going to hear about Santa. Mm-hmm. I mean, you send your kids off to anywhere and they're going to hear about Santa. And so you're right. He is, in some ways, risen to as much fame, sadly, as the Christ child. Mm-hmm. But I think what's wonderful about Santa is what you hope is although it has been commercialized and probably because of the roots that he has to St. Nicholas is there's still something wonderful about gift giving. Um, I think what's difficult is then you, it kind of turned into this, if you're naughty and nice, and we'll talk a little bit more yeah. about that with Elf on the Shelf, but I think what for parents, cause that's the question I get a lot and I'm not a parent. And so I'm always like, punting on yep. this question, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. and, cause I do, I, Hey, I, I can absolutely empathize with a parent who goes, Hey, I don't want to lie to my kids. And Santa's yep. obviously not real. And yep. I think that's what makes the real story of St. Nicholas so sweet mm. is you can really bring that back into it yep. and talk about this real man who was very generous, who looked after children. Um, he's not, he's not in heaven looking over you. Yep. I mean, you don't yep. have to make it spooky and weird where your yep. kids are not only afraid of the Holy ghost, but now St. <laughs> Nick. Um, but I do think to say, Hey, there's a whimsy and there's a fun about Christmas and that's, that's okay to have whimsy and fun. It's why we go to the movie theaters and we don't go thinking that's a real story, but we go going, Hey, I'm willing to suspend my reality for a second and enter into imagination so that we can create whimsy and fun during this holiday season. Um, It's funny. uh, So last Christmas um, was really the first Christmas that my three-year-old now, Nate knew kind of what was going on, you know, so it was fun. I mean, so it was a, but I, I mean, as a parent, I'm, I'm in the middle, I'm in the throes of that right yeah. now. And Nate very much believes in Santa Claus. And so I it's funny too, <laughs> there's a, yeah, no, I told Margaret, this was not kid friendly, well, but, but, uh, but I mean, what was funny is last year and y'all, y'all might judge me, but whatever, I don't care. Um, <laughs> is that I started playing Johnny Cash songs for him because he loved, I mean, he loved, and as soon as I played it for him, he loved Johnny Cash. And so he would ask me, can I go listen to Johnny Cash? And I was like, well, Nate, Johnny Cash is dead. And death is, he's just still trying to figure that out, you know, but we've had some family members die and he's kind of gotten that uh, concept more deeply down. But last, last year I was trying to, cause what I, my technique for this, which you don't have to adopt it, but I'm just throwing it out there. And, and I would also say, if you're listening and you have comments about this, please let us know. We'd love to interact with you. But, but what I did with him last year is, is I was, I very much was tying the Santa Claus legend to the actual person of, of okay. St. Nicholas, um, which is historical. But I, I like just slipped and was like, it was talking about some, some of these stories from St. Nicholas. And then somehow Johnny Cash got brought in the conversation. I was like, well, St. Nicholas has been dead way before, you know, <laughs> way before Johnny Cash was. And there was this weird, awkward silence. And I was like, did you catch that or yeah. not? And Nate goes, so maybe Santa Claus is dead. <laughs> and I was like, well, uh, so. So is it worse to tell your son that Santa Claus isn't real or that, or he's, that he's dead? dead. <laughs> I think dead might be the. But I recovered. I recovered. I uh, was talking about, hey, Santa Claus, you know, lives on. But but I think that um, one of the things that's been helpful for me, too, and I wanted to make this point is one of C.S. Lewis's massive hurdles that he could not get over prior to becoming a Christian as an agnostic and an atheist prior to that was how he saw so much beauty in mythology, Mm. you know? And so he equated the, the beauty that he saw in the new Testament in the gospel story with mythology. That's just the way that he saw it. And actually the man who helped him with that 
was uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien was actually able to convince him, hey, just because something retains a mythological element to it does not mean that it's necessarily historically false. And I'm approaching Santa Claus in the same way. Hey, there is a myth of Santa Claus that has been passed down to us, and that's okay. But I think it is important that we link the mythology of Santa Claus to the actual historical event. And so that really what you have is in some ways, in some ways different from the Gospels, obviously, for so many reasons. Um, but what you have in, in Santa Claus is in some ways a true, a true myth. That it retains the mythological element of it, but is still historically true. And that's the way I'm approaching it with Nate. So they went with Nate and Miles and, you know, if the Lord continues to bless us with children, when I tell my kids down the road that Santa Claus is not real, that's only partially true. Do you see what I'm saying? There's the mythology of him. Part of it that's that's not true will fall off, but we're, we're still able to link um, that to, you know, hey, this expression of Santa Claus is not true, but there actually was a Santa Claus, a Saint Nicholas who followed Christ and gave him his life. So, yeah, there's a question that came in. You've covered it some, but uh, maybe just putting a package and a bow on it, so to speak. But it says when when people compare God or Jesus to Santa to make the argument that believing in God is like believing in Santa. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you refute that? I know that may go into a larger argument, but yeah, I would say um, a lot of what I just said. I mean, I think that that there are uh, mythological elements to to Santa Claus that are clearly not true. He's clearly not an elf. He clearly doesn't have traveling the world. He clearly doesn't way. live in the North Pole. In our chimney. I mean, yeah, he he doesn't come down chimneys. I mean, and we don't even have a chimney in our house, so. I mean, I think what we may try to do is just get like a chimney deal on our TV, you know, mm-hmm. like Santa comes through the TV, which there's, there's some truth to that. Like you order stuff on Amazon through a screen and it shows up at your doorstep, you know. <laughs> so but I mean, I, I do think that um, for people who are believing that Santa Claus, the mythology of Santa Claus is the same thing as a mythology of Christ. Well, then we would point them to all of the historical evidence yeah, that there is for. I mean, you, even as I was saying earlier, I'm going, hey, some of this, we cannot substantiate these claims. There's just not historical mm-hmm. evidence. There's just not. And I and there's this if anybody's being intellectually honest with history. Right. So you go ahead. I don't, I don't believe that a man named Jesus walked the earth. I'm going, well, then you're just not being intellectually honest yeah, with the right. evidence. There is evidence that a man named Jesus walked this earth in the same way of evidence. That Abraham Lincoln walked the earth. Yeah, you're either um, ignorant or you're blind. Right. And so now when people go, hey, I don't think we have historical evidence of the resurrection. That's where I would enter into that conversation and go, hey, we, we do have yeah, historical evidence of that. A lot of it. A lot of it. Yeah. Enough to convince frankly, those of us sitting in this room. Whereas with the Santa guy, if somebody's like, hey, I don't think he threw that bundle of, of gold through the window, I'll go, great. Okay. Yeah. You know, and so maybe I, not. Maybe, yeah, maybe so not. I would tell them, hey, they're comparing apples and Santa Claus oranges at that point. And so, <laughs> and only one goes in your stocking. So they're not the same thing. Um, but it's a great question because in the same way, Easter bunny, whatever, sort of yeah. these, yeah. these commercialized things that we've done to religious holidays, um, which is part of why we're doing today to look into these things and go, what is the historical evidence? What is real? What is, um, as my niece would say, fake fiction, phony baloney. So <laughs> I try to tell her really big, grandiose stories and she'll kind of look at me with her head caught to the side and she'll go with me ever so far. And then there's always this moment she goes, and I get, that's fake fiction, phony baloney. And yeah. I'm thankful she's discerning at six years old. Yeah, so, yeah. um, so Nate, you know, you've got Santa, you've got Christ, and then I, we've even mentioned it already, it seems like most houses in America that celebrate Christmas have a Christmas tree. Yeah, so where yeah. did that come from? Yeah, there's a lot of decorations that go down this time of year. 
We even have one in the studio today. That's right. Mm -hmm. Here it is right here. A little jingle tree. Yeah, I think that, again, there's a lot of attempts. Um, there is a ton of, of Christian legend around Christmas. And yeah. so we, we acknowledge that clearly. I mean, one of those legends is our attempts that people have uh, tried to make over the years to try to tie the significance of the Christmas tree to uh, some sort of pagan worship rite where, because in pagan. In certain pagan worship rites, I mean, that people did worship trees. It was kind of this sign of, in, in Genesis 1, a tree of life yeah. um, that, that happened. In fact, in the medie- medieval period, um, there were, um, in a play that commemorated uh, the birth of Adam and Eve, which was celebrated on December the 24th, our Christmas Eve, they did used to erect a paradise tree, which was a, to signify the, this new life. But that doesn't have any kind of connection to Christmas other than it actually it just happened to happen on that day to commemorate uh, Adam and Eve, not the birth of Christ. The earliest legend that we have is about a guy named Boniface who went to Germany as a missionary and was preaching to the Germans. And a lot of commercialized uh, Christmas as we know it now came out of Germany, Latvia, Estonia, northeastern Europe, mm. around Finland. That's where the roots were were born out of. And anyway, the, the legend goes is that uh, Boniface was preaching to people and that he cut down a fir tree. Um, and when he cut down this fir tree, he was telling them, hey, look at how the fir thrives in the midst of kind of this bleak winter month. And because of that, um, it was and was tying the gospel to it that, hey, the gospel can thrive inside of you through difficulty, through hardship, through this is these can be things that God uses to bring about a deeper maturity in you, uh, new life, these kinds of things. And so he was tying the gospel to it. But then from that came this legend of, hey, we're celebrating uh, life in the midst of kind of darkness, mm-hmm. light in the midst of darkness. Mm-hmm. There's a And it being the winter solstice, which is a clear contrast between light and darkness, it got legs and started running. And so I'll just give you a couple dates here. Um, during the medieval period, I, I mentioned about the creation of Adam and Eve on December the 24th and, and the celebration that people had to commemorate that using trees. But then in 1444, the Christmas tree began to be a standard decoration for Christmas. But it was only a standard decoration of Christmas among royalty, aristocracy, mm. the elite, and and also in Germany, Estonia, Latvia, as I, as I mentioned before. So even though it became a tradition for for people. It was only a very small group of people, and it definitely was not commercialized like it is now, for mm-hmm. sure. But in 1531, they started to be sold in markets. In 1605, people started putting decorations on them. So we're seeing this like slow progression of the, the Christmas tree. In 1660, I thought it was interesting, they started putting candles like live fire candles on Christmas <laughs> trees. Oh, wow. <laughs> my grandparents in Germany did this when my yeah, mom was they, That's up. what I was going to say. Wow. Like they, they, in Germany and Latvia yeah. and some of these places, they, they, they're like, hey. They have way more faith the in heck God's with sovereignty than me. <laughs> we're gonna, they hold on to the tradition of yeah. live fire Christmas trees. Wow. It's crazy. But in the 1700s, especially 1740, they started to spread through Europe. And then in 1740, they were brought to the United yeah, States. I you said. mentioned that earlier. In 1781, they were taken to Canada, actually, because um, Quebec was afraid that the United States was going to attack them. And so uh, German soldiers were sent to Quebec in 1741 to reinforce garrisons there against a a U.S. invasion of of Quebec. And with them, they were like, hey, 
it's Christmas time. <laughs> we're bringing Christmas trees. Wow. And that's how they uh, came over to Canada. In 1837, they were introduced in France again by a German aristocrat. Brought a Christmas tree to France. Sylvia, it sounds um, like we owe your people a debt of gratitude know, for right? a tree. Um, Oman, Opa are listening. Yeah. <laughs> in 1851, there was the first public Christmas tree in New York City that yeah. was that was put up. And then in, in 1856, the first Christmas tree was was put into the White House. And once that started happening, you sure. start it started to get publicity. It started showing up on magazine covers when that started happening. And it's, I mean, some of the Christmas, the actually earliest Christmas trees were like small ones that you could put on a table and, and decorate from there. And then, you know, as it's gone, they've gotten bigger and bigger, but there's, and now nowadays, I mean, obviously it's, you're like weird if you don't have one yeah. in your house. Um, but it was funny that uh, a lot of wealthier families, like we mentioned with Sylvia, who used uh, actual candles on their tree, would only light it once during Christmas Eve when the when the tree was revealed. Wow. And then most of the time when they lit the Christmas tree, they would they would have the wealthier families would have servants standing around with buckets of water. Yeah, just in case. <laughs> so they didn't burn their house down. Hey, that's no joke. If you have a real Christmas tree at home, I hope you read all the literature on how you have to keep that sucker watered. Yeah, seriously, no doubt basis. about it. Yeah, it's a massive fire hazard. It's like, hey, let's put a let's put a a dry fir tree in our house yeah, and with set it on, on fire. It. That's what I was yeah. saying. They have more faith in God's sovereignty than I do. I'm oh, worried man. all night. My house is on fire. Yeah, it's crazy. One more, one more note about this that I thought was funny is the standard artificial tree that, that people can buy now that's like less of a fire hazard, you know, was first modeled after uh, a toilet brush. So the toilet brush is like the bristles on it because initially the artificial trees were like feathered trees and the feathers were too flimsy to hold ornaments. And so they were like, we have to have something sturdy enough to hold ornaments and, and lights and to decorate it. So somebody was doing their best thinking. So a toilet brush company was like, we got something for that. And that, that was one of the first artificial That's trees where the was modeled after My, the how we went from royalty to toilet brush as we commercialized. <laughs> awesome. So anyway. in summary, if you have a Christmas tree, you're not pagan. You're not nah. certainly not borrowing from from pagan tradition this and that's what i think that's something sweet about this is that these are traditions that uh in some fun ways like baptism in a much lesser way as baptism is a, a means of grace but it does link us to a tradition that yeah. that is much deeper and much i mean although it has been commercialized uh we can take that back and go hey i'm doing the same thing that yep. that people who have loved christ for centuries have done and you can still tie meaning to it like boniface did with the Absolutely. germans um it's like hey we're we're celebrating the 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 thriving in the midst of yeah in this winter, know, the, the winter there's months. evergreen that, that's in this right, that's dead right. season there's yep. this life. tree of life yep. Absolutely. Uh, well, I, I can't not mention Elf on the Shelf yeah. because, you know, we're sitting here mentioning all these historical traditions and all these fun, whimsical things. And then Elf on the Shelf just bothers me. And so I was yeah, like, I can't yeah. leave here without the negative. And so, <laughs> uh, no, but, I you know, Elf on the Shelf is, you know, sort of this new tradition that's taking off. I don't know how long it'll last. And uh, my hope is it'll go away. But if you do <laughs> Elf on the Shelf, I'm not I'm not hating. But I the reason why I'm mentioning it is because what I think and I mentioned this earlier with Santa Claus why Santa, I think, can be redeemed and what you can do with Elf on the Shelf is we just have to be careful to not turn it into this um, message that we send to our children, which is, hey, if you're good, you get gifts. And if you're bad, you don't. That's right. Because that's the antithesis of what Christmas and Easter are. Yep. Um, that the very, the very hope of the world that said, despite your badness, in the midst of your badness, I came into this world and, and chose to redeem you. And so I, I think Santa... Um, 
can be this guy who says, hey, even when you're on the naughty list, which frankly, Everybody you're is. all on the yeah, naughty that's list, right. That's right. you get gifts. And yep. so, you know, when my friends started telling me about Elf on the Shelf and they got excited, and I can't, since I don't have kids, I lack a little bit of whimsy. And so I'm always the theologian who's the <laughs> Debbie Downer in every environment. And I relish that role. So I'm hearing about it and they're like, yeah, it's great. You, you put it all around your house and then it spies on your kids and then it tells Santa if they've been good or bad. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, and just, uh, my single self-righteousness that doesn't have children who's trying to behave in December because I hear they're about like training blind monkeys. And so, I, hey, I, I think it's whimsical. I think it's yeah. fun. But I think as long as the message is, so I think it could be a really fun thing. Elf on the Shelf could be, hey, he's here. He's excited. He's um. So we, you know, he's yeah. adventing with us. He's excited. He's pointing ahead to something that's great yep. and we're looking forward. Uh, but just always want to be careful. I hear, you know, uh, whether people mean to or not, they're like, hey, you need to be careful. If you're going to continue mm -hmm. to act up in the Starbucks line, Santa's not going to come to you. Uh, no, yeah, and I want to yeah. lean over and go, hey, uh, listen to me. Christ is going to die for you no matter what. <laughs> you know, there's a gift for you no matter what. Even yeah. if you get a lump of coal from your parents, which yeah. um, let's not also forget about the fact that what parent has ever actually given their kid a lump of coal? Yeah, no so these empty threats, I don't think are going as far as parents <laughs> yeah, think they're yeah. going. And we, you know, we have, we have an elf on the shelf at our house, but we, we've reversed it. To where there's no like obviously like consequence. It's not like he's spying on. If if anything else, we've told Nate to sp spy on the elf. So it's become a game for him. So most every night we'll move the elf, and the next morning he wakes up and it's it. a game to go yeah, find the elf. Absolutely. You know, like where'd the elf go? Um, I mean, I'm not the you know, grouch. So. I can't have fun at Christmas. Yeah, I certainly yeah, love. Yeah playing with my nieces and nephews and uh, Sylvia and I both have in common that we learned how to make balloon animals and it's put me into the, the anthood <laughs> hall of fame in some ways. Uh, so I, look, I, I love fun. I love whimsy. I love a good story. I try to relate uh, current political news to my niece and nephew by telling them stories about ogres and, you know, pitchforks yeah. and whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, um, but I, there's a theology of Christmas that is irrespective of Elf on the Shelf now, but there is this theology of Christmas that I think as believers we must protect. And I, and not so that we get angry at Starbucks and cups, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the discipleship of your home and in the discipleship of your life, uh, there is a real tendency to over-commercialize the season. Mm -hmm. And so, Nate, I mean, there this is when we're talking about the, the incarnation mm -hmm. of our Savior, mm -hmm. the incarnation where the God-man became flesh. Mm -hmm. And so let's just take some time because we'd be miss, yeah. we'd be remiss if we didn't just talk about what is Christmas. Yeah. What? Yeah. What does it mean? I think, I think probably if you ask ten people, even to you know, went to the church, what does Christmas mean? Most most people would say Christmas means that that Jesus was born. In like church-going people. Yeah. You know, you ask the person on the street, they're probably gonna tell you oh, Santa Claus and get presents or whatever because of the influence of the commercialization of our culture. But, and I think the answer Jesus was born is the right answer, but, but I think there's meaning like that statement is pregnant with meaning. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I think we're asking the question, what does Christmas mean? And, and I think to answer that you have to start with the creation of the world. I mean, you have to start with God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in perfect unity, in perfect love, in perfect creativity, who is creating the world, the material world, the universe, everything that exists in, in, in reality is sourced from the ultimate reality, um, who is God. And then on that material world, he placed representatives, mm -hmm. um, people who are made in his image, right? We bear the image of God. 
which is this epic story of, hey, I'm going to create, but I'm not, I'm not going to create alone. I'm going to create and I, I want you to partner with me. Mm-hmm. I want you to work with me in a very real way. I mean, he's, that's the, com- the very first commission we're given by God is fill the earth and rule over it, right? Be my under ruler. And uh, unfortunately, because of the, the awesome power of meaningful choice that God gave to us, we rebelled against him. And all sorts of, I mean, the entire creation, everything about it was uh, distorted, Dis- dysfunctional, not the way it was supposed to be, which yeah. is why the early church made such a big deal about death and, and new life that, that death is simply a door. From that, though, you have a long history with the nation of Israel of God interacting with, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's later, later renamed Israel. These promises that he's giving to them, how he's bringing them up out of Egypt, out of slavery, right? And then um, he's, he's promising to establish them in a land to make them a certain type of people. Uh, Exodus 19.6 says, a kingdom of priests, people mm-hmm. who bear my name, people who are to represent me to mm-hmm. the world to, to ultimately fulfill my commission. And that is fill the earth with God-type people who are going to represent me in an accurate way. Um, but because that's distorted, then we're left at the mercy of our own depravity of, of just like, well, we're just even though we try to do things, we're, we're left not fulfilling what God intended for us. And so truly, without some sort of intervention into this epic story, we're lost. I think that's that's a great you know, four letter word to describe um, our condition apart from God. And yet, probably on January the 6th, 4 BC, just prior to Herod the Great's death in the spring of that same year, under Caesar Augustus, a little cry sounded out mm. in Bethlehem, and, uh, and a baby was born. And this baby grew up to be a, a man who had a public ministry, and he claimed things about himself that were so extraordinary that it was just out, it was outstanding. And and one of the things that the primary thing that he claimed about himself, not only that all of Scripture was about him and that he was the hinge on which history turned, mm-hmm. right, but that he actually was God and uh, and that he came, like we see in Matthew chapter 28, that he came to reinstitute the commission. And so and I say, like, hey, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in, in, into the name, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've told you, and I am with you, mm. right, always. And that's the, the the theme of the presence of God. In fact, Jesus' name, as, as Isaiah foretold, is Emmanuel, which is three little Hebrew words that mean God is with us. Mm. That's what Christmas means. It means that God has entered into our story. It means that, that the eternal word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It means that we have a visible... Um, example. It means that through his example, we're now empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the type of people that God created us to be in the beginning. Yeah. We can be his under rulers. We can rule in His in the way that he wants us to. He can redeem the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. And and that ultimately, that is exactly what will happen. That the, the whole story ends with the book of Revelation, where there's a new heaven and a new earth, and, and we are with him um, forever. So, that's what Christmas means, right? Mm-hmm. It, is it's not just that Jesus is born. There's a there. If you don't understand the meta narrative or the whole broad story out of which the statement Jesus is born 
fits, then Jesus is born doesn't make any sense. Do you see what I'm saying? And so that's what Christmas means. I love it. Well, friends, thanks for tuning in with us today. Uh, obviously a little lighter in, in some ways, but we want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas. Uh, and before we'll come back, we'll be the New Year, so Happy New Year as well. I hope you have all your Until resolutions. Until January the 6th. Yeah. Until keep, Jan- your, keep your Christmas decorations up. That's right. <laughs> or all year round with all these yeah, different exactly. dates I heard. I know, right? Be on the- yeah, just March to be the 25th, just be May saved. the 20th, yeah. November. <laughs> There's one that shows up in July yeah. that's crazy, but yeah. See, now I have information to keep my tree up year-round. Yes. So, awesome. uh, But we're grateful for you guys tuning in. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It's awesome.